Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. days that prepare us to be your witnesses in all of the earth, Lord. And I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 12 this evening. And uh, it's a fun chapter. Uh, Revelation chapter 12. And I don't know if you read it ahead of time. I don't know if you've ever read it before. Uh, but it is a, I don't know why, but it's fun for me because um, I just, I, I like the way Revelation 12, kind of in the middle of the book, presents all of the main characters in this play, or these main characters in this drama that's unfolding in this prophetic revelation. So we're going to look at chapter 12, and I think, if it's all right with you, I'd like you to just take your Bible, and we're just going to read through the entire chapter all at once to begin with. So Revelation chapter 12, Lord, I just ask you to bless your word as we read it and speak to our hearts, beginning with verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appears, this is a second sign, then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail sweeps away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and a time and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be looking at this narrative this evening. And it's like a story within a story, this chapter. It's two signs that appear in heaven and a story that goes with them. It's not mythological. In fact, it's... Uh, more accurate than anything else that we're reading in a sense. Not that there's any myth or legend in the other parts of it, but there's not really any metaphors involved in here. There's not really any uh, types and shadows or things that would be necessarily difficult 
to understand. There are some, but it's not a difficult story to understand. It sounds like a children's story. It sounds like something that you'd read to your kids out of a, out of a book, a picture book with pictures of knights and dragons and things like that. And because we're so modern and we're so scientific, we tend to think that these things are mythological. If they're not mythological, they are actually the truth. And what we're actually seeing in Revelation chapter 12 is a story that uh, reveals to us the main characters in the end times, the main characters really in all of history, and what's really going on behind the scenes. It's what's really going on in the world today. We've already begun to talk about that, but I want us to focus on this chapter, and we'll just go through it a step at a time. I'm going to kind of break it up in a couple of different parts and bring things together. For example, you notice that twice it talks about her fleeing into the wilderness, once she flees into the wilderness, and once the archangel, or I'm getting ahead of myself, a great eagle with his wings carries her into the wilderness, but this is symbolic of the archangel Michael, who is the prince of Israel and uh, makes war on behalf of the people of God, and he protects her. But this is really referring to one it's just like a good story, you know, and it's like all stories used to be written. Things just repeat themselves. It's referring to one event. So I'm going to try to make it more perhaps Western and divide it up in a way that we think more today to look at these things. And But I don't want you to get lost in the technicalities of it. I want you to know the technicalities of it, but I want you to feel and understand the beauty of the prophetic message that is, is here. So... We're going to begin uh, with the woman and her seed uh, versus the dragon and his seed. That's really the main uh, topic of chapter 12. There's a woman and she has a seed, and there's a dragon and he has a seed. And we read about this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Um, the things that are spoken of in Revelation chapter 12 they reference things like everything in Revelation that are already in the Bible, already in the Old Testament. And so they're not difficult for us to understand. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, going way back to the very beginning, uh, we read, And I will put enmity uh, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So there is a woman who has a seed and speaking to the devil, because God is speaking to the devil in this passage, he says that you have a seed. He says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And so we see this, this story at the very beginning, but then we read in Revelation that it's still the same story being played out throughout history. So... Um, the first sign that we see, there are two signs. The first sign shows us the protagonist in the story, the good guy in the story, I guess, the hero of the story. And the second one shows us the antagonist, you know, the bad guy in the story. So let's look at the first sign first. Before that, did do that, turn these lights back on. I can't read very well without them. Maybe that helps. I don't know, something's just a little bit different here. The glasses are, that, that helps. Fans that will bug me before. Sorry about that. So, the first thing that we see is a sign. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A sign is an event, it is a thing that is meant to signify something of great importance for us on the earth. You know, we have road signs, we have signs everywhere, and every sign has a meaning, or it should have a meaning. And all the more so when it says that there's a great sign in the Bible. It, it tells us that this should signify something to us on the earth. So I want to talk about that first. What we see in this great sign that appears in the heavens is a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and her feet and on her head is a crown of 12 stars and she's pregnant. She's getting ready to give birth. So let's talk about the woman first. Go back with, with me to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis chapter 37 and verse 9, we'll begin reading. There's a young man by the name of Joseph. I think everybody knows the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors and what his brothers did to him and how they sold him 
into slavery. And Joseph had two dreams. And in verse 9, we begin to read about the second dream. And it says, Now he, Joseph, had still another dream, and he related it to his brothers. It's interesting they says this to his brothers first. His parents hear about it, and he says this to his brothers. And he said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the same in his mind or in his heart. So in this story in Genesis, it's very clear to us that the son represents his father. The son is Jacob, right? The son is Israel, uh, and his name is Israel. The son is Jacob, S-U-N, son. The moon is Rachel, the mother of Joseph, and the 11 stars are all the brothers of Joseph. But we have the exact same picture, the exact same sign that's revealed in chapter 12 of Revelation, only there are now 12 stars and not 11 stars. And that's because Joseph is a type, merely a type, in the Old Testament, and one of the most wonderful types of Jesus that we see in the Old Testament. One of the things that's very interesting about Joseph is, you know, he was just a person like us, but the Bible, in the Bible narrative, God chose not to reveal to us any sin or failure on the behalf of Joseph. Have you ever noticed that? We see this perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ in Joseph. Of course, Joseph, as a person, had sin and failure. But in the narrative of the Bible, in the inspired Word of God, he's a type of the perfection and the beauty of Jesus Christ and how through his suffering, he's elevated to great glory and he rules over Israel and he saves Israel through his own suffering. And he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. So it's a beautiful type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to Revelation chapter 12, um, and we read these first verses, it, it shouldn't be a mystery to us, really. If we know the Bible, then it's very obvious what is being spoken of here. And if it's not obvious enough, it becomes quite obvious that her child is Jesus. So who is this woman? Well, in the first place, this woman is... Uh, some, people, some people are going to tell you this woman is Mary. And I'm going to tell you this woman is Mary. Some people are going to tell you this woman is Israel. And I'm going to tell you this woman is Israel. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you that this woman is Rachel. It, it doesn't really, there's not really a difference here. Because we have this understanding in the scripture of the daughter of Zion. And in the Old Testament, uh, for various reasons, for example, she is the woman that uh, Israel loved. Uh, Rachel becomes this type of Israel, this mother of Israel. Uh, she becomes this beloved daughter of Zion. And you remember that in the New Testament, when in Bethlehem, Herod puts to death the, all the boys that are under two years of age, then the scripture is quoted about Rachel weeping over her children, okay? But then we, we also have, have an understanding, of course, that she is Israel. So this is the nation of Israel. It does represent the nation of Israel. But there's absolutely nothing wrong uh, with going ahead and agreeing with the Catholic Church on this. This is Mary also. I mean, it's quite obvious because she gives birth to Jesus. And Mary is, whether you like it or not, called the mother of my Lord by Elizabeth. And she had great grace. But there's no reason for us to belittle Mary just because somebody else makes something out of her that she shouldn't be. I mean, she is the daughter of Zion. And she is the woman that was chosen. So when the scripture talks about the seed of the woman, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. It's not talking about Eve's firstborn children. It's talking about the seed that comes through Mary. Of course, it's talking about Jesus Christ. So this is Rachel. This is the daughter of Zion. And she has 12 sons here. Some of those sons of Israel were not her sons. 
Some of them were Leah's sons in the Old Testament story. Some of them were the sons of concubines of Jacob. But she is the mother, the adoptive mother, I guess you would say. The picture of the mother of all of Israel, the daughter of Zion, in other words. And so we have the 12 stars here because Joseph is included also. And I want you to understand that they bow down to Joseph in the Old Testament story. And we will see that her child rule, or we read already, her child rules with a rod of iron. So they all bow down to Jesus. To Jesus, every knee bows and every tongue confesses of all of Israel and of all of the universe. So when we look at the Old Testament so the story about Rachel, Rachel's sons are Joseph and Benjamin. Uh, and her firstborn son is Joseph. And Joseph is nurtured in the wilderness. He's nurtured in Egypt. Mary's son, Jesus, is nurtured in Egypt, protected and fed in Egypt. And out of Egypt, God calls him. And Israel is nurtured for 400 years in Egypt before they are born again, as we would say, into the promised land. And they, they go through the wilderness and are born again into the promised land. So we have all these pictures and all these things uh, are included in this. And we should hold these things in our mind as we read them. Uh, one, I want to also talk a little bit about what Jacob did when he heard this story. So Jacob, it says that he held these things in his heart. Or it says in my Bible, they held them in his mind. Uh, depending on what Bible you have, I don't know what it says. But in his mind, mind is in italics because it's not in the original uh, Hebrew. What it says is he held these things. So he held these things in his heart. He was, he thought they were absurd. He didn't necessarily agree with them. But he trusted God enough to think maybe there's something to what God has revealed to my son, uh, Joseph. And I hope that that reminds you about Mary also. Because we see the same thing about Mary. Go with me over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, and verse 19, after the shepherds uh, spoke to Mary when they came to the manger, in the Christmas story, as we call it, in verse 19 it says, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. So she didn't tell anybody about them. And maybe you've wondered sometime why Luke has all these details that none of the other Gospels have. Well, Luke was a historian who interviewed people. And the, it's most likely of all that he interviewed Mary before she died, and he heard these things from her that she had never told anybody all her life. It says that she treasured these things uh, in her heart. And the story of the shepherds is only in, in Luke. Then look with me over at verse 52, the very last verse of chapter 2. It says, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse uh, uh, verse 51. It's a, this is the story of Jesus when he's 12 years old. And he's in the temple, right? And uh, they've taken him up to the temple every single year. They, did, they, they, were, they were not a rich family. They were a poor family because we see in here that when they brought him for his dedication, that they gave an offering of two turtle doves, which was the offering for the poor people. The richer people would give a lamb as an offering. And so I'm, I'm not saying they were utterly impoverished, but they weren't rich people. But they made the trip to make it to Jerusalem every single year for Jesus in accordance with the law. And when they came, when he was 12 years old, you know that they took off, and at the end of the first day, they realized Jesus is gone. And together with all the relatives, they begin searching for him. They go back to Jerusalem to try to find him. And finally, they find him in the temple, and they're very upset, just like any parent would be. And they get on to Jesus for that and try to make him feel guilty about it. And Jesus, as a 12-year-old, says to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house, or more literally from the Greek, did you not know that it's required of me to be in that which belongs to my father? And about Jacob it says, 
he kept all these sayings in his heart, or in the Hebrew, he kept all these matters, these things in his heart. And Jesus said, I have to be in the matter or the thing that belongs to my father. And then it says in verse 50 that they did not understand what he, what he just told them. And 51 it says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, just as Joseph continued in subjection to Jacob. If we had continued reading there in Genesis, we read that the very next thing, Jacob tells him, go out and feed your brothers, take this food to them, and he goes and he does exactly as Jacob told him. He continues in subjection to his parents, but something has changed. He's grown up. He has this relationship with his father God, and it says that his mother, the moon, treasured all these things in her heart. She kept these things in her heart. So um, before I leave that, I want to point out a couple of more things to you. In uh, verse, uh, let's see, in verse, uh, verse 40, let's see, yeah, what we just read. In verse, uh, verse 52, in verse 52, I'm sorry. It says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Go back with me to chapter, still in chapter 2, but back over to verse 34. This is when they're in the temple and they're coming to the temple for the days of dedication for Jesus. So when Jesus had been, after Jesus had been born, on the eighth day he is circumcised and he's given the name Jesus. As you read through chapter 2, you see that. On the 40th day, when Jesus is 40 days old, they would bring him to the temple. And remember, they didn't, you know, that wasn't, uh, it wouldn't be easy for you with a 40-day-old baby. It was definitely not easy for them. They fulfilled everything in the law exactly to the T. So they bring Jesus to the temple. And I'm sure you know this story about Simeon and Anna. And Simeon blesses them. And he says these things to Mary. And then he says, it says, Behold, this child is appointed, appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And for a sign, there's that word sign, that this child will be a sign. And this child is a sign in Revelation chapter 12. And Jesus said that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens. And there will be a sign that appears one day. The Son of Man appears in the clouds. And all the world will see him and know that he's coming. Only for most of the world, it will be way, way too late then. So Simeon blesses, he says, that he's a sign to be opposed. So he tells him right ahead, right away, nobody's going to listen to the sign. Nobody's going to obey the sign. Or not very many people are. He will be opposed. And he says to Mary, the sword will pierce even your own soul. You know, and that's fulfilled. Because at the cross, she's standing there and watching her son die. And, you know, every mother in here knows, I think every father, but especially every mother, knows that that would be a sword piercing your own soul. To the end, that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That will bring this revelation. And then Anna comes and does what she does, says what she says. And um, then we go over to uh, verse 39. It says, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now notice that in verse 40, it says that he is increasing in wisdom. Now, they actually did not go directly back to Nazareth right away at that time. That comes later, when you put all the Gospels together. They went to Egypt in between these times. And he's nurtured in Egypt, then they come back, and then they go to Galilee. Uh, but it says in verse 40 that he's increasing in wisdom. And in verse 52, it says that he's increasing in wisdom and stature. And it appears to be the exact same word because it's the same word in English, depending on what version you have. But it's actually two completely different Greek words, and there's a lot of meaning in these Greek words. And the first one, where it says that he's increasing in wisdom as a baby before he's 12 years old, as a toddler, and as a child before he's 12 years old. The word literally means that he is being filled with wisdom. The, he's, he's a passive 
uh, he has a passive role to play in it, so to speak. His mother, his parents are putting the wisdom into him. I want to say his mother because, you know, Joseph's not really his dad, but I'm sure he played a part in those early years. He seems to be gone later on when Jesus has grown up, but at least in those 12, he's still alive and he's still there. I'm not hinting that he left home and divorced everybody, but that he died perhaps. But they are pouring that wisdom into him. But when he's 12 years old, and it says that he kept increasing in wisdom and stature, or and in favor with God and men, three things. Wisdom, that speaks of his the development of his soul. Stature speaks of his physical development and his age. And favor speaks of his spiritual development with God and with men. So spirit, soul, and body is increasing, it says. But this word increasing is a completely different word from the word that we have over in verse 40. And it's a word prokopto, prokopto. And it means, kopto means literally to beat something, okay? And prokopto means to go ahead and beat it like you have a machete and you're beating the way through, the, through a path. But it's actually a nautical term that means to sail against the current and to make headway against the waves that are beating against your ship. Okay, it's really important. And it's really important for all parents, grandparents to understand this, that there comes an age in a child's life when you don't just pour into them and they soak it up like a sponge, when they have to beat out their own path. They have to grow up in the Lord. And there comes an age in all of our lives if we're going to be in what belongs to our Father in these last days, that we're going to have to go against the tide, go against the stream, you know, go against the flow, that we're going to have to sail in the opposite direction that the waves are pushing in this culture. And I've sailed a few times in my life, if you can believe that. It's so long ago, I don't remember a single thing about it, but I do know this, it's very possible that you need to work at it. You know, it doesn't just happen by default. And when a child is a little child, you can just pour into them, they soak it up like a sponge. But the church has to grow up. We have to grow up in the Lord. And this is what it tells us about Jesus, that he began to grow in the Lord. He, he took his first steps. He said, don't you know that I have to be in what belongs to my father? And I'm not going to compromise on this, mom. I'm not going to just take off and go wherever you say to go. I'm a grown man now. I'm only 12, but, and I'm going to continue living in your house and submitting to you, but I will not compromise on this, that I'm going to follow my father God. I'm going to do the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So we see all of this in this picture that begins, this first great sign that begins. And just as you meditate on that, I really believe that the Lord will add more things to it. So we, we see this progression against the blows, this uh, growing and going against the flow. And then it talks about that this, when, if I skip down, it talks about this woman that she will be nurtured for 1,260 days. So the 1,260 days is the time of the Great Tribulation. It's three and a half years, okay? And so this is a time when the entire uh, flow or current, uh, the waves of the world, it's, I don't believe that three and a half years has started yet, but it, it's going to get much worse than it is now. But we're living already in that. That is pushing against us. It's going against us. And if we don't make progression in the spirit, if we, don't, if we are not being nurtured by God, then we will not survive in the last days. But it says that she is nurtured, that she flees into the wilderness, and she escapes uh, what we already read about in Matthew chapter 24, the trampling of Jerusalem by the Gentiles. So I believe that this is a picture, and I'll talk about this in just a few minutes, that we can see on different levels, because that's how prophecy works. You know, we can see it as Rachel, we can see it as Mary, but ultimately in the last days it's talking about the nation of Israel. Okay? And it's talking about what we've already looked at in chapter 11 with the two witnesses. And that Israel, during this time when Jerusalem is trampled underfoot by the Gentiles for three and a half years, Israel... Uh, which is true Israel, uh, they will be protected. Uh, it's very possible that they will physically be
be relo relocate into the wilderness, but they will be protected. However, it works. They will not be destroyed, that God will protect them uh, during that time. Uh, but I believe that we should always uh, apply that or transfer that to our own lives, whether we're Jew or Gentile, because God only has one family. So it's also speaking about us as a church, as Christians, and it can be applied to any time in our lives. If we'll trust in God, if we'll understand, uh, do you understand this evening that we are the sun, the moon, and the stars to God? Now, I don't think we see ourselves the way God sees us. I don't think we understand how important we are to God. You know, if I had been Joseph's father, Jacob, and he had told me that story, I probably would have got offended also at first. What do you mean I'm going to bow down to you? You're going to bow down to me, boy. But then as I meditated on it and held it in my heart, over time I might start to realize, wait a minute, God just told Joseph that I'm the sun and that Rachel is the moon and my children are the stars. I mean, you could see it in a different way. You didn't have to get offended by it. This is awesome. I'm so important to God that he's made me the center of, of the solar system, you know, that we're the apple of his eye. And if we can, by faith, see ourselves the way that God sees us and we follow him and we walk with him, then we will always be protected. That doesn't mean nobody will die for the sake of the gospel. That's not what protection means. To be a witness means that we're willing to lay down our lives, but we will not uh, perish. We will not be destroyed. We will not take the mark of the beast. We will not be deceived. Uh, we will be protection, protected. So then later in the story, we see there's some more details that uh, she is born into the wilderness on the great on the wings of the great eagle, which is Michael the archangel. There's a spiritual protection working behind that. And I want to emphasize that because, again, we have to see, this is what chapter 12 is about, that there is a spiritual battle going on, and it's going on right now. It's not a world war, it's a war of the worlds. And I'm telling you from a physical standpoint, we are in a world war right now. You know that at the beginning of World War II, some of you might remember this, but there was a time, a period, that uh, the, the British called the uh, phony war. And the Germans called it Sitzkrieg, the sitting war. And it wasn't like that for Russia. For Russia, it was war from day one in 1939. If you go to Russia, World War II, what they call the Great Patriotic War, began in 1939, not 1940. But there was a long period, many, many months, when uh, France and Britain had already declared war on Germany, but there was no fighting. Nothing was actually going on. And it very much feels like we're in that position right now. Because there are things that are happening right now that so easily could lead to World War III, the thing we've been talking about for years, World War III, Armageddon, or something like that. And I don't know what's going to happen. I honestly don't know what's going to happen. I don't even know how to pray properly about it. Because I know things have to happen for the coming of Jesus. So I pray in the Spirit, and I pray as the Holy Spirit gives me leading. But I know one thing, the safest place to be is holding on to Jesus, following Jesus with all of our hearts. If you ever dreamed about being radical for Jesus, this is the time to start being radical for Jesus. Because things are happening in the world that, um, I know it's not in the news all the time. You know, I know Roe v. Wade's in the news, and now Trump's in the news again. What was it today? I don't know. For some reason, Hunter's never in the news, but, but well, Trump's in the news. They just put Hunter Biden in the news. But, uh, and all that stuff. But there's so many things going on, you know, that can distract us away from the message of the Word of God. But what we read in the book of Revelation, if you'll pay careful attention, it's beginning to happen before our very eyes. And we need to be prepared. So she is protected in the wilderness. And there are, there's a spiritual force, Michael the archangel, with his wings that carries her into the wilderness. And it says that the dragon releases against her this flood that comes out of his mouth. So it's these words, it's these curses uh, that come out of his mouth. But the dryness of the desert, you know, there's a blessing to be in the desert. It's so dry that if a flood comes, the earth just opens up and swallows it. And the earth opens up 
and swallows this time. I don't know what that means. When it happens, we'll know. But keep it in mind, like Jacob. Keep it in your heart. Because it says that the earth will open up and, and swallow that flood, and she will be protected from, from that. Uh, so it's not the place where she stays, but it's a temporary place that's prepared for her uh, uh, during this time to nurture her. Uh, then it also talks about during this time that she's being nurtured um, that uh, let me find that verse it says the woman felt fled in verse 6 fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1260 days you know, it literally says in the Greek, it doesn't say so that there she would be nourished. It says so that there they would nourish her. They would nourish her. And I kind of want to make a big deal out of that. It's not always a big deal, but tonight is a big deal. Those little things. Why is that a big deal? Because who does the they refer to? Well, if you read the context, there's no one else that they can refer to except for God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. So in the story of Joseph and in the Christmas story, Jesus and Joseph, they're nurtured by their mothers in the wilderness. They're fed in the wilderness by their mothers. Jesus, as he was growing up, the wisdom was being poured into him. He was soaking it up like a sponge, right? She was breastfeeding him, physically feeding him, caring for him and nurturing him. But in this story, the tables are turned and the son nurtures the father, I mean the mother. So God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son, they are nurturing uh, Israel. They are nurturing the mother in the wilderness. And the nurturing is the Word of God. So as we feed on the Word of God and we allow God to nurture us with His Word, then we are protected. And there's no curse. There's nothing that Satan can do to stop us. So the next part of the sign, the first sign is the child. And the child, it's, yeah, I don't need to explain it. It's very obvious that this is Jesus, right? Um, that John made that very obvious, that this is Jesus. And so he is the king, he is the Christ, he is the anointed one, and he was born from heaven by the Father God, but he's born through the woman. He's born into this earth through the woman, and he has a purpose. He has a, a destiny, if you will, a purpose from his birth. He was born to rule the world, to rule the universe, to rule over all nations with a rod of iron, it says. So, at, and the, and the uh, we'll, get, we'll get to the devil in a minute, right? So he's caught up to God. I'll talk about why here in just a minute. And he's born to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. We've already talked about this in Revelation chapter 2, but it's been a long time ago, but I'm not going to open it right now. But in the letter to the church at Thyatira, or the letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Uh, it is said by Jesus that those who overcome, they will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Okay? So the reference is to Jesus, but we are the body of Christ, and if we are overcomers, and we walk with Jesus and stay with him all the way to the end, we are born to rule the nations with a rod of iron. The word rule, we talked about this then, is actually the word shepherd, the nations with a rod of iron, that we will rule and reign together with Jesus, that we will, in his kingdom, that we will rule and reign together with him. But you know that God has given us today, every one of us have a family, we have children, we have grandchildren, we have a church, we have people around us, that God has given us the opportunity to shepherd. And we are to shepherd them with a rod of iron. And that sounds like I'm saying that we should go around whacking them on the head with something, but that's not what it means. A rod is authority. In the Old Testament scripture, we understand the rod as the authority. And saying that it's a rod of iron means that it's authority. This is God's authority, which cannot be broken. That we shepherd them. What does it mean to shepherd them? To feed them, to nurture them. You see, God the Father and Jesus the Son nurturing the woman in the wilderness. And we nurture them with this rod of iron together with Jesus. It's the work of Jesus in us. It what is what is a part of what it means to be an overcomer. And so all the 12 stars and all the universe, they bow before Jesus. 
So we have this story about this war in heaven. There's Michael. He's also a part of the protagonist. So in the good guys side of the story, we have the woman, you know, the 12 stars. They have the sun, the, the, you know, the, the, the moon and the 12 stars, I mean. And then we have her child, which is Jesus. So we have Israel and we have Jesus. And then we also have Michael. He's on the side of Jesus. He's on the side of God. And it says that he's making war in heaven. He's the friend of the king. He's the warrior, the captain of the Lord of the hosts, armies. And it says that he defeats Satan and his angels and he cast them down to the earth. And there they are crushed underneath this rod of iron. And remember, we bear the rod of iron. Is there anything about the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 that makes you think of a meek, well, meek's not the right word, because that's a good Bible term, actually, but a weak and kind of, uh, you know, just a lame church that's being pushed around by the devil? There's nothing at all, right? They've got fire coming out of their mouth, and nobody can withstand them. And what's happened to the church? Where's the church that stands up in the power of the Holy Spirit and preaches the gospel in boldness? You know, it stands for the truth. It doesn't get involved in all the lies and all the, like we were talking about on Sunday, doesn't waste all its time in the politics of the theater, but preaches the truth of the kingdom of God. So there is the church on earth and Michael and heaven working together in this war. When we pray, whether we realize it or not, and in our lives, as we live our lives, we are cooperating with heaven in a great spiritual battle that has already begun, and it's just heating up today. So in this story of Satan being cast down out of heaven, we already talked about that somewhat, of how God was putting them all into one big cauldron or one big pot to judge everything at once, and that Satan is cast down from heaven together with a third of the angels that he takes away with his tail. We read about it here, and I've already said this, but remember, there's no big deal about a third of his angels that you should be scared of. It just means that there's twice as many on God's side. There's two-thirds on his side. It's a minority force, okay? And uh, he's cast down to the earth. So again, in a very prophetic way, and you have to understand this about the perspective of prophecy, we see a story that happens in our, when, when we're locked into time, we, we see things different than God sees them in eternity, right? You know, we see the progression of our lives, how many years do I have left to live on this earth, and all this kind of stuff. But God doesn't see things that way from the standpoint of eternity. So we're reading about a story that already happened at the beginning of time. When Satan was cast down, we find, when Genesis starts, we find Satan already in the garden crawling around. Well, he's walking still at the time, but he gets struck down so he can only crawl. He's a serpent. A serpent is a dragon. Serpent, dragon, worm, all those things are the same thing. When you read different versions of the Bible in English, you're going to see those words, but they're all the same thing. He's a dragon. We see him as a dragon in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of the story. So he's already been cast down from heaven. Now, Lucifer was already cast down from heaven. And then Jesus says in the Gospels, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. And that doesn't mean, oh, he came down with such power and glory like lightning. That means he fell so fast that it was boom, it was over. Because that's how lightning happens. And yeah, there was an explosion, and it wasn't nice, but he fell, and he fell hard. Okay? But then we see, again, at the end times, this same story being played out. And that doesn't mean it's three different stories, or two, or four, or whatever. It may be that from our perspective, but from God's perspective, it's one great story of the defeat of Satan. And so it's played out again in the end times, and it's happening today in our lives. But there are consequences to that story that we need to understand, that are very important, that we're warned about in here. So let's look real quick at the other side of heaven the antagonist, the dragon, and his kingdom. So there's a great red dragon. I'm going to take a few minutes to go over to Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27. I don't think any of you believe that dragons exist, but they do. Satan is a dragon. 
Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. And on this earth, at some point, we can say, well, that was a dinosaur. Maybe it was. Maybe we call that a dinosaur now. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it got on the ark or didn't get on the ark. There's all kinds of theories about all these things. I only know one thing, that on this earth, once there walked a great beast, at least one type of great beast, called Leviathan, who is a dragon. And he is a picture, a type of Satan. We read about him in Job also. And he was created by God. This creature was created by God. And it says in Isaiah 27, verse 1, And that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, or dragon, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. That's the fire or the water that comes out of his mouth. The words that come out of his mouth. Do you know what the name devil means? Does anybody know? No, it doesn't mean deceiver. It means the slanderer in Greek. The word devil means one who slanders another, the slanderer. And the word Satan is a Hebrew word that means enemy. That's who he is. That's his weapon of warfare, is to slander the saints of God, to call out all your sins, to point out all your failures, and to bring you down with guilt, to bring you down with condemnation and to take you down to hell. But he honestly doesn't really care a whit about you. He's after the child. If you look at chapter 12, his goal is to destroy the child that the mother gives birth to. And when he can't destroy the child, he says that I'll go get the mother. And when he can't get the mother, he says that I'm gonna to go to every church in America. And I'm going to pick off every single person I can pick off. And I'm going to destroy their lives. Because I'm going to hell, and I'm going to take as many people to hell with me as I can take. That's the devil. That's who he is. And there's nothing glorious about him. There's nothing beautiful about him. It's all a disguise. It's all a lie. It's all deception. He is the father of lies. And all he does is lie. And if he's a slanderer, that means the things that he slanders you about, they are lies. Do you know, according to the Constitution of the United States, Fifth Amendment, you're what? Not required to give testimony against yourself. Why? You know what? We talked, I think it was Sunday, I was thinking, but when you get the wreck, you don't get out and say, this was all my fault, right? Why don't you do that? Not just because you want to save money, but because you don't actually know that it's all your fault. You yourself don't even know the whole truth about your own self. I had an uh, old guy, 90, the last time we saw him, Tommy and I saw him together at the park. I think it was 97 then. His name was Cooper Beatty, and he taught at Rayma at the Bible College where I was, and he was probably you know, 80 or something when I went there, and I was 20-something, so he was really, really old. And to me, and he said a lot, he had a lot of, he called them nuggets of truth. He had all these little golden nuggets of truth. He would say, I remember uh, one time, one of, one of the things that he would always say is, you're talking about pleading the blood of Jesus. And he says, when the devil comes to accuse you, you can't plead not guilty because you are guilty. What he's accusing you of, you actually did. You, but you can't please guilt, plead guilty because that means going to hell. So you plead the blood of Jesus. <laughs> I remember you always say that. And first, I've heard that phrase growing up in the South and in church. I've heard that plead the blood of Jesus phrase. I never really got it. Never really understood what it meant. But when he said it like that, at least that aspect of it, I totally understood. I'm pleading the blood of Jesus. I'm not guilty. Jesus' blood. He paid the price for that sin. I confess it before God and put it under there. So what Satan is doing is he's lying. He's deceiving and he's bringing slander and condemnation against the people of God. And it says uh, that this is his great and mighty sword. So in Isaiah 27, I got off track there, but that's okay. Verse 1, it says, Even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he, God, will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Where does the beast come from? Up from the sea, from the abyss. And in that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I like that. You have to read it like that. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment. That's the church. That's here in your fellowship. That's Israel. That's the people of God. So that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Why does everybody think God's mad at him? God's not mad at everybody. 
We're going to, at the end of the Revelation, we're going to read about the seven bowls of God's wrath. Yes, the whole world will incur his wrath, but not until the very last moment. He keeps giving them the opportunity to repent. He says, I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. Today it would be landmines. I would just step on their landmines. They wouldn't even hurt me. I'd burn them all up. Or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will root Jacob. It's Rachel. It's Israel. Will root. And Israel will blossom and sprout. And they will fill the whole world with fruit. So he is this Leviathan. He is this great red dragon. It says about him that, that he has seven heads. And I'm going to go over this real quickly because we're going to focus on this much more in chapter 17. It says that he has seven heads with seven diadems. Okay? He has seven heads and seven diadems. We've already read some of these verses, but if we look at chapter 13, verse 1, it says the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having <clears throat> ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So there's the devil, he has seven heads and seven diadems, and then we'll just call him the Antichrist, the beast. He also has seven heads, and he has ten diadems. That's the big difference uh, between these two. And then look at chapter 17, verse 3. In chapter 17, verse 3, it says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. So the woman, who is the whore of Babylon, I can use that word, it's King James, <laughs> but uh, the harlot of Babylon, the whore of Babylon, it's a Greek word, horne, and it means the prostitute of Babylon. And she's revealed here. We'll talk about her when we get to it more. Uh, but she sits on the beast. And the beast is the earthly manifestation of the dragon. Okay? They're all the same, but they're at, at different places in the spirit here and there. She sits on the beast and she rides, rides on that beast. And we'll talk about that more, like I said, when we get to chapter 17, which will be really interesting. And then in verse 7 it says, And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, verse 8, and is about to come out of the abyss and go to the destruction. We talked about that last week. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. Mountains represent kingdoms. Kingdoms. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Just like we had the angel of the church and we had the lampstand is the church. The star is the angel, the lampstand is the church. Here we have uh, the, the, the heads are the kingdoms themselves and they are the kings. Every one of us understand that. If we want to talk about something going on in the United States government, we can just say Biden. That one word, those five beautiful letters, say it all. Everybody already knows what you're talking about, right? If you want to talk about something going on in Russia, you can just say Putin and you're talking about Russia, right? You're not necessarily talking about that man in particular. And so it is here that the seven heads are these seven mountains that she sits on. And there are seven kings. And five of them have fallen. One uh, is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. So I'm going to just give you some things really short here. And maybe they're not going to stick with you too well this evening. I don't know. But we're going to repeat them. So they'll keep coming back. And we've already talked about them, by the way. Uh, so the devil... Or, you know, the dragon, he has seven heads and, and seven diadems. Uh, the beast, it says that he has uh, seven heads, but he has ten diadems because he has ten horns. The horns uh, are also like the idea of the mountains or the hills, something that protrudes from out of the head. Um, in um, history, okay, this one I need to explain to you. Try this as fast as I can. 
Let's figure out what's the most important. So in history, uh, wait a minute. In prophecy, let me start with this. In prophecy, there is a perspective that's a prophetic perspective. I think I've talked about this before, but if I were to go out into a part of Nevada where I'd never been in my life, I didn't have a GPS, I didn't know anything, and I was all by myself and nobody could tell, them, tell me about it. And I was standing on a mountain, and I was looking out at a mountain range, and I was very far away from that mountain range, I would see a picture that I can understand, but I don't really know anything about it. Because I could see two mountains that in my mind's eye, they're right next to each other. But if I were to actually go up to them, they would be very far from each other, right? They could be very, very far from each other. Because my perspective is somewhat distorted because I'm standing really far away. And so it is with prophecy. So the first picture that we have of the seven kingdoms are the five which have fallen. And the five which have fallen are Egypt, and then Assyria, and then uh, Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar, and then Persia, and then, uh, and then Greece. At the time that John is writing, those five had fallen already. One is, that's Rome, okay? And one is coming, that's what I refer to as barbarian Rome, okay? The Rome we live in today. There's a reason it's called barbarian, and I'll tell you in a second. So, barbarian Rome, okay? That's what he's talking about. That's the picture that John sees right now. But ultimately, if you go far enough away from that picture, and you're standing way far away, you're just looking at a mountain range. You don't even see seven mountains. It just looks like one big giant mountain, right? Because it's a mountain range. That's just Babylon, okay? There's only really one kingdom of Satan on this earth, and it's Babylon. The whole, and, the, and, and Babylon has a whore, the whore of Babylon, okay? And uh, we'll get into all that later. And that, that kingdom exists from the time of the Tower of Babel. Okay, that's the, the beginning. But then we see those seven things. But then as we get closer, if we were to come up to just the barbarian realm, what we call barbarian realm, this is modern times. We still live in this, whether we understand it or not. There's a guy by the name of Charlemagne, if you remember him from history, or Carl the Great, okay? And he's a Frank. And there were actually 10 barbarian tribes that subjugated Rome in the West. Not Constantinople in the East, but Rome in the West, the Rome that's in Italy, okay? That leg of Rome. Those 10 tribes subjugated that underneath Charlemagne. And in, 800, in AD 800, the Pope in Rome crowned Charlemagne the Holy Roman Emperor, and thus begins what we call the Holy Roman Empire that exists up until World War I, basically. And it still exists today, but it just keeps changing its name. It's the European Union, the United States of America, whatever. I don't know how it all fits in there right now, okay? There's a lot of different theories and ways you can put these things together. But what's very, very interesting, if you'll study history, there were 10 tribes, but when uh, Charlemagne uh, took power, he subjugated three, three of those 10 tribes under himself. And so there were actually seven tribes. He was one of the seven, as it says here in Revelation 17 that we'll get to later. He was one of the seven, but he then became an eighth. He became, it was a whole new creature after he was crowned the emperor of Rome, okay? So that is even getting closer. Well, you can look at the news this week, just this week, and what do you see? You see something called the G7, right? Seven mountains. You see seven kings, they're not called kings anymore, but they're sitting around the table. And seven kings are discussing what's gonna happen with a new world order is what they're discussing. And sitting at that table, there are seven kings. But the Bible tells us that one of them, who is among the seven, he will become an eighth, and there will be a new, new world order coming out of that, the kingdom of the beast or the kingdom of the Antichrist. I personally have a whole lot of theories on how this is going to play out, but they're just theories. All I want you to see right now, before we get into Revelation 17, is we're living in this today. Even the numbers work out. The seven mountains, the seven kings, and that the woman sits on them. If you'll study the woman, which we will, when we get to that, you'll see that it's an economic system, a way of making money. 
that ultimately has to do with enslaving people and using them to make big money for the whole world. That's the world that we live in today. But what you have to see in chapter 12, above all else, is that behind it all, there's one single dragon. One single dragon. He's got all these mountains, he's got all these guys, all these things, but there's one dragon. Now here's the thing about the devil. And before we leave, I want you to get this. The devil has seven heads. Okay? The devil's got ten horns, he's got seven diadems or ten diadems. There's utter chaos in the kingdom of Satan. Do you know that? Do you sense the chaos in America right now? Like nobody is in charge and people have utterly lost their minds? Like they've just gone crazy? Like, I mean, literally, like God just said, that's it, I've turned you over to the depraved mind. Decisions being made that make no sense at all. Things being done that are just crazy. And I'm not, I mean, after the, the here's an example. And if I were not a Christian, Actually, this isn't true. If I weren't a Christian, I'd be crazy like that. I'm sure of it. But I would like to think that even if I were not opposed to abortion on the basis of the Bible, that I would have enough brains to understand that Roe v. Wade was a very bad legal decision. It just isn't constitutional. It doesn't make sense. And like one of the justices, I think Kavanaugh said, that the, the Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion. It's not pro-abortion. It's not anti-abortion. You know, it wasn't ever to be an issue that should have been decided for the whole nation. You know, just like gay marriage is a very bad legal decision. So that they change that decision is, you know, it, it's not just a good thing, it's a great thing. And not just from the standpoint of stopping abortion. You understand what I'm saying? But instead of somebody actually trying to logically approach this and understand this, you've heard this. I mean, on the news, everywhere, first of all, people are protesting, they're going nuts. And not just that, they're saying the Supreme Court has lost its legitimacy. Has anybody heard that? Everybody's saying that now. You turn on every channel, I don't turn on it. I think I watched Tucker Carlson and he did that for me. Turn on every channel or something. But they all say the same exact words. Lost its legitimacy. Lost its legitimacy. Okay, so what you're saying is the United States has utterly destroyed that. Because if there's no Supreme Court, there's no government anymore. There's only three branches of government, right? So what they're saying is so absurd, so crazy, it doesn't make any sense. It's utter chaos. But then when you compare this to Jesus, there's only one child of that mother. Everything's so simple. There's a mama, and there's her baby boy, right? <laughs> one child, not seven heads, one head. He goes up to the father, and he rules as one over all the nations with a rod of iron. I want you to know, be convinced today, as we read the book of Revelation, that Jesus Christ is ruling over the nations today with a rod of iron. And things are happening. The devil's not in charge. He thinks he is. God's allowing him to do things because his time is very short. And I want to end with this verse that's at the end of this. It says, the dragon was enraged, because you have to know this the day we live in. The dragon was enraged with the woman. He was furious with Israel. He couldn't get to the child. That crucifixion thing didn't work out for the devil, did it? He was raised from the dead. He couldn't stop the child, so he tried to stop Israel. And you know, I bet... About a hundred years ago, the devil was pretty convinced that that's it for Israel. You know, Holocaust came, Hitler, I'm sure the devil was just cackling somewhere. That's it, I finally destroyed the woman, and then boom, all of a sudden we have the nation of Israel, the state of Israel. You know, Jerusalem belongs to Israel, it's all falling apart. So do you think the devil's mad today? I'm, I'm telling you, I could use some foul language here to describe it, I guess, but I won't, I'm preaching. But the devil is really ticked off, okay? He's not happy at all. And it says he's enraged with the woman. And so he went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Take a guess who that is. That's us. So you've got to know the devil is on the war path today. And he's coming for the churches. 
because he can't stop Israel. He couldn't stop Jesus. So he's coming for the churches, and that will increase in the time of the Great Tribulation. Fifth seal, many people will be martyred. Many people will lose their lives. But to those who overcome, to those who hold on to the end, they will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. So I'm going to end with that because that's enough time for tonight. Uh, there's the great proclamation from heaven. I won't even go teach on that. Just look at it in chapter 12, uh, verses 10 through 12. And it, it's, I mean, you just read it. We read it already. It's just, it's just supreme, the supreme proclamation of the second coming of Jesus. And it reminds us that everything we're looking at is in the time of the seventh trumpet. This is the proclamation of the coming of Jesus. So as we move forward then, we're not going to meet together next week because it's the 4th of July, um, but the week after that we will. And as we move forward, chapter 13 is going to deal with the two beasts. Things kind of are, there's the progression, we're already at the seventh trump, and there's going to be seven bolts, okay? But there's things that are being explained to us now so that we have a full picture and a full revelation of that. Amen? Questions. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvinyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.